Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the On Path Podcast. You may be thinking, that does not sound like the normal voice I hear from BJ when he starts hosting the show. Well, that's because this is not BJ. This is, in fact, Dan Fajera. Uh, you may have heard me in episode four of this season of the On Path Podcast, but I'm here to actually interview BJ and, and switch places with them for a sec. So BJ and I know each other from middle school in where we met in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And uh, we reconnected nearly 25 years later, uh, shortly in the lead up to recording episode four of the podcast. And after having done that experience, I thought BJ would be the perfect guest to cover some of the same themes that have made On Path such a rich and rewarding uh, experiment so far. So I am here and delighted to be hosting BJ and be asking him the questions. So a little bit about BJ that you may not know, BJ Biswanathan is a uh, marketing professional who's currently been on sabbatical since January 2020. One of his projects during the sabbatical has been exactly this, launching and fostering and growing the On Path podcast. His career has always revolved around the intersection of marketing and technology, and we cover this in great depth, so you can really see how this unravels for him. Most recently, he was a VP of marketing at StarMind, a business-to-business SaaS startup based in Zurich, Switzerland. And previously, he was part of two other tech startups as well. He started his career, though, as a software engineer at the global marketing agency McCann World Group. His early life involved growing up around the world, uh, which we talk, which we go into at in great length as well, having been the son of, of a diplomat. We also cover some unexpected life turns, his perspective on careers, and how he seeks inspiration. I'm really glad BJ agreed to do this. He would not have brought this idea himself, being the, the humble person that he is. But uh, I nudge him a little bit, and I think it's I think it's worth the results. So why don't we jump right in, and you can judge for yourself. Enjoy. BJ, I would say welcome to the show, but this is in fact your show. So I, I thought what I'd say instead is welcome to Swapping Seats, where you're now the guest to your own show. So I hope uh, I hope your guest kept it warm for you. But uh, welcome to that side. Yeah, thank thank you so much. Thank you for offering to interview me. It's actually a little bit scary being on the other side, so but I'm excited for our conversation. Well, I think your story is really cool, given the theme of your of your show. And I, I thought I wanted to, I thought it'd be a shame for your listeners not to get a hear from from the mastermind as far as his his particular story. So I'm glad you agreed to do this. Yeah, thank you. So why don't we launch right in? I want to start somewhere a little bit unusual. In our lead up to this conversation, you talked about your semi-deportation story. Yeah. And what an inflection point that was in your life. Take us there. Talk about where you were physically and in your career, mindset, et cetera, and, and, and what happened. Yeah, yeah. This is one of those defining moments in my life. I should start by saying that up to that point, really, I felt like all roads led to the US. Since the age of about seven or eight, I was studying in American schools. And there was really never any doubt in in my mind, or I would say really in my family's mind, about where I would go to college and where I would find a job afterwards. And so things were really going according to plan. I moved to the US for college. Uh, I graduated and I was working at McCann World Group in San Francisco. And as a foreigner, I needed permission to work in the country. And fortunately, the U.S. government has this program where foreign students can stay on and work in an area directly related to their to their line of study. So this was in 2008, and it was a year and a half of me already taking advantage of that program, and we needed to apply for an extension. So no problem. The extension criteria was pretty simple. 
one specific point was the company needed to be registered in this database called eVerify. And, and this is where things went wrong. There was a miscommunication. I thought the company was registered. Turned out they were not. Uh, and by the time we found out, it was, it was too late. And things escalated quickly from there because I had to not only leave immediately, but I could potentially be barred from re-entering. And considering my brother lives in the US, that would, that would not be a good situation. So yeah, it was, it was a dramatic shift. And I think looking back, kind of one of the big surprises in my life. So you, you had a quite interesting upbringing and you traveled so much. You were so, you were very internationally sort of rounded. Talk to us that experience and how that sort of may have influenced your, your reaction to that critical inflection point around your immigration issues in the U.S. Um, when you were working at McCann. Yeah. So, you know, when I look back uh, at my childhood, by far the most unique aspect of my life growing up uh, and even into my early adult life uh, is all the places I had the chance to live in. Seven countries in, in five continents over 25 years. Uh, and I think growing up, sometimes I didn't, uh, I kind of took this for granted because I lived in, uh, I was surrounded by people who had somewhat similar stories. And so really my, my life has taken me all over the place. I was born in Libya, uh, in, in Tripoli, and then we moved to Mauritius, which is this beautiful island of the Indian Ocean where people generally go for honeymoons or, or vacations. And then we moved to New York City, where I did elementary school and then Sao Paulo, Brazil, where we actually met and uh, went to school together. And then Caracas, Venezuela, from where I graduated from high school. And, and at that point, I branched off from my parents and moved to Worcester, Massachusetts, uh, near Boston. And that's where I did my undergrad at Clark University. And a couple of months before graduation, my brother was kind enough to take me to San Francisco kind of as a pre pre-graduation gift. Uh, and I really loved it. I think after after four years of winter in Massachusetts, uh, <laughs> the, the weather was immediately appealing. And I also loved the food and the scenery. So I moved out there after graduation and found a job. Yeah, and so that kind of answers a, the, the, the question about where did I grow up? But how did that shape my reaction to having to leave the U.S. abruptly? Well, one of the things is that I've never been afraid to kind of uh, pick up and move to a new place. Uh, I would say overall, I'm a very risk averse person, but it's never felt that risky for me to just move to a place that's completely new. And I moved to Europe, I moved to Switzerland, not knowing anyone here, not having any family here, not having any family in the continent. But that didn't feel like that big a leap just because of my upbringing. What do you think makes, what do you think influenced you to feel like making that such an, what would feel to many an, an abrupt change, right? To you felt so natural. Where do you think that comes from? Yeah, I think it's just the, the, the comfort from knowing that I've done it before, that I'm, that I'm actually, I'm, I'm comfortable being a, an outsider uh, in many ways. And, you know, what I always tell people is that even though both my parents are Indian and I have an Indian passport, even in India, I'm an outsider. So I'm kind of always used to being the outsider. And uh, so I'm not, I'm not afraid to, to learn and adapt. And I think, uh, you know, moving to a new place is a lot about that. So when people ask you where you're from, what's your answer like? So, you know, I, oftentimes before I would start to tell the story, but it's kind of a long story. So these days I just keep it simple and I say I'm from India. Good. Well, I'm glad we get to hear the, the more unwrapped version there. Yeah. Excellent. So you're in Switzerland now, right? So you yeah. had another change from your, if you fast forward from your, your, your timeline in the U.S. What took you to Switzerland and what have you been cooking up in your time there? Yeah. You know, when, when I look back to that decisive moment, it was decisive, but actually 
surprisingly, it wasn't that jarring. And I think part of that is because since, since about college, I became very interested in Europe. I was fortunate enough to go to a liberal arts university and had the chance to take some art history classes with some really inspiring professors. And we learned about ancient Greece and we learned about the Renaissance in Italy. And I was, I was so ex excited and inspired that I approached the university and asked them, hey, can I, do a, can I do a study abroad? Now I was there on a scholarship and they told me, you can't do a study abroad when you're effectively studying abroad already, uh, which, which is a fair answer. So I, I didn't get to kind of scratch my itch there and, you know, explore Europe. And being in, in San Francisco, it wasn't easy to kind of just hop over to Europe. And so having to leave the U.S., I would say, you know, one of the most positive things that came out of that was kind of it opened up some new doors for me. And I applied to grad school in various places, including including to back in the U.S., but ultimately I decided to, to come to Switzerland. Uh, it was a place I'd visited a couple of times. I really, really enjoy living here. I really enjoyed visiting as well, but I uh, appreciate it to another level. Uh, yeah. And so in the, in the 10 years that I've been here, I've graduated from grad school, worked at a couple startups. Two of them were very early stage startups when I joined. Yeah. So it's, it's been, it's been, it's been a great adventure. What kind of work are you doing at these startups in Switzerland? So I've been really working at the intersection of technology and marketing. Uh, I majored in computer science as an undergrad, even though I took a wide variety of courses. And my master's degree was mostly computer science. And then I did a bit of entrepreneurship uh, and technology management. And so I've been able to leverage my experience in, in marketing uh, and my studies in, in computer science to really work at the intersection of technology and marketing. So talk, talk us through that world, the transition from computer science and undergrad to marketing. That to some feels like a massive pivot. How do you, how do you sort of see that shift and that evolution in your, in your career path through, through the lens of the topics that you've touched? So it wasn't that big a shift for me because already as an undergrad, I was doing internships at marketing agencies. Even my first role it was as a software engineer, but at a marketing agency. So I'd always been kind of working at that intersection. And then to touch upon some of the specific points of intersection, well, the world is a lot more digital today and that, you know, that influences every aspect of marketing. So if you think about kind of the channels and if you think about marketing as getting the right message to the right people at the right time, well, so many more of those channels are digital now. And so having a, a foundational understanding of technology really helps with marketing. There's, uh, there's also the product itself. So I've, I've actually always been involved in the marketing of software products. So having an understanding of how the software is built really helps. And then there's even, even the audience. Now, this isn't something I've done specifically, at least not yet. But I think it's kind of the ultimate intersection when you're marketing software to developers. And what's the, what's the big, what's the key there? Like, what's, what, like, what, if you had to distill the keys to marketing software developers are, yeah. you're, you've got, you're uniquely positioned to answer that. Like what, like what's, what are the ahas there? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. So I think with developers, you have to think about where they are and what they care about. They care about uh, solving their problems and they might not necessarily be interested in engaging in a sales conversation. So, you know, some of the channels that work really well are like the forums or the other places that they're looking for solutions. And then if you're able to 
really provide them value there. I think that's that's something that's a different angle in in terms of marketing to developers. And just just a, a bit a little bit more upon how I think a computer science education helps. I've, I've heard people talk about computer science is kind of the new math, where you know you could go down people who study math they could go down you know a pure math career, but you can use math in so many other ways, right? Whether you go into the sciences or engineering. Yeah, no, I love I love the intersection. It makes it makes total sense, and it's cool that you found a cool niche that overlaps heavily between those two spheres of the brain, if you will. Yeah, yeah. I, it was also a realization that I was, I, I I wasn't going to be the best software engineer out there. So I think that's part of the the modern career landscape about finding where you can provide the most value. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. Now, not only have you been working in startups, working at the intersection of marketing and technology, you've recently made the decision to do this, which is start the OnPath podcast and having guests on and having conversations like this. So what's uh, what was the most inspirational, where does that come from? What's the genesis of it? What's Where was the aha moment that led to here? Yeah, so I've been an avid consumer of podcasts. In the last five years, I've probably listened to thousands of hours of, of podcasts and it's a medium that that I really connect with that I think is very powerful for storytelling because you hear the person's voice, you hear the passion, you hear the pain. And, you know, it's not it's not the optimal medium for maybe, you know, teaching a course. But if you just want to hear people's stories, then I think it's it's very powerful. And so I've been an avid consumer. And then this year I've been on a sabbatical. I, I didn't come in thinking that I'd start a podcast, but I would say late summer, end of August, September, I I thought, you know, I know a lot of interesting people with a lot of very interesting stories. And I, w- I would love to share their stories of, you know, what have been kind of the ups and downs and the the, the left turns and right turns in, in their career and life. And so I, I, I told myself, okay, let me, let me give it a go. And I would say one of the biggest realizations I've had is that it's actually incredibly easy to do. There's such low barriers to entry. You know, I didn't need to convince any agent. I didn't need to buy any very expensive software. I just had to get started. Yeah. And uh, no good deed goes unpunished, as you know, which brings you here today. (laughs) So um, so I'm glad it's come full circle in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. So through all these stories that you've had with people on your show and through your own realizations with your career, like what's like what's one nugget, one thought, one quote that you wanted to sort of that you sort of like that summarize a lot of what you learned through many of these discussions? What's what would you sort of like distill it in its most essence? In its, let me ask it a different way. In speaking through so many guests on your show in your own personal career experiences, what's the sort of the crispest articulation you've heard of what it takes to make a rich, fulfilling, beautiful career take shape over time? That's a tough question. I would say one thing is defining what success means for you. Yeah, I think once once you have a a clearer understanding of that, that can that can help guide your your decisions in your life and career. And yeah, and there uh, there've been some really great stories from from all the guests in this podcast. Like even in the interview, you what I really valued is how you shared that you didn't get into Google the first time. It took it took a couple of tries, you know, and when I think about what kind of value do I want to provide to listeners, it's part inspiration, it's part 
information and maybe a little bit of entertainment. And I think that's that's really come through in in all the interviews that I've I've had. Cool. Is there any sort of mantra that's guided your career? Well, there is a there is a quote that I love. I'll just read the shortened version of it. Your career is not a ladder, it's a game. Those who treat it like a game will collect the resources, find the people, and build the skills that compound and have fun doing it. So I came across this quote recently and it 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 really resonated with me. You know, there, there are many different versions of this. Think of your career as a climbing wall, where, for example, you can move laterally, you could even move downward, or even think of your career as a smartphone, where your different experiences uh, or the different skills you get are like apps you download. But I think at the heart of it is that a career as a ladder analogy simply doesn't fit today's world. And, you know, with the ladder, it's a series of evenly spaced intervals and there's one clear direction. And and I think today's reality is, is very different. So uh, I personally like the analogy to a game uh, and it makes me think of one of those classic role-playing video games, like, like Diablo 2 if you're, <laughs> if you're into games. And in, in those games, there's generally this extensive map, but it's all blacked out. And one of the keys to success is just exploring the lay of the land. You come across potential allies, obstacles, resources, and, and to take that analogy even one step further, in some of those games, you might walk through the entire map, uncover everything, so you know the physical topography, but at any given point, you only have real-time information of this specific point where your character is. And I, I think that makes for, for a good analogy to the, to the modern career. I got to say, I like it better than the smartphone. The smartphone is like, like I guess, you know, like, <laughs> so, so I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad mine's not a smartphone because that would be sort of like, sort of nuts. So I'm, I'm glad that the game makes, makes a ton of sense. Yeah. 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 Who do you look for, for inspiration to perhaps unlock some of the keys to this game? Yeah. Yeah. So I should, I should start by saying I'm a person who's, who's easily inspired. And I think that's one of the reasons I, I really enjoy reading biographies and, and listening to podcasts, you know, regardless of this specific area, I'm inspired when I hear or watch people who are passionate about and, and skilled at what they do. And I'm inspired by, by many historical figures and a lot by athletes, musicians, and, and stand-up comedians, just, just watching them do what they do best. And, and so actually, you know, one of the things I, I thought about for this interview is I'd like to share a specific tactic I use that maybe is a little bit unusual, but I found works really well for me. And, you know, that's, that's one of the beautiful things about growing older. Uh, you realize what, what works for you. It's, it's not the hair loss that I'm excited about. It's that I, I know myself better as a person. And so I, I found that, you know, these, these kind of what I call inspiration injections work well to really infuse inspiration in my daily life. So it's not just about a once a month, once a year kind of event, but it's really about infusing inspiration in my everyday. So, so the first is a, is a video of someone called Jonathan Moffat, AKA Sugarfoot. Now for people listening, hearing this name, that probably doesn't mean much, but I'm pretty sure you've heard, you've heard his music. He was Michael Jackson's drummer for over three decades. And he's played with some of the biggest names in music like Madonna, Elton John. And so in 2018, this company called Dromeo very wisely decides to invite him to a studio and record him playing some of MJ's top hits. And since I'm talking about music, first, let me say that, you know, as my wife will attest, I know next to nothing about music and I know absolutely nothing about drumming, but watching a video of this guy play is magical. He is absolutely phenomenal. 
Uh, and my favorite video is uh, of him playing Smooth Criminal. It's just a few seconds short of five minutes, but it's it's really a sight to witness. The energy, the skill, the humility, and especially the timing. And the, the second the second kind of inspiration injection is from, from someone who's very well known, Usain Bolt. But this specific moment is perhaps not as well known. It's the 2011 World Championships semifinals in Korea, and it's him and seven of the best runners on the planet. And so the race starts, 50 meters in, Bolt has pulled so far ahead of everyone else that it's clear he's gonna win. And at that point, I guess he just wanted to secure a top spot. It's a semifinal, and he wants to save his energy for the final. So he just jogs the last 50 meters. He's really just strolling past the finish line. It's unbelievable to watch. And you see all these elite runners straining behind him. And he was just so fast from the get-go that he still wins first place. And he has a final time of 10.05, which is nothing remarkable for him you know, as an Olympic record holder and as a world record holder. But it's incredible to think that just a few decades back, that would have been a world record. And to see him do it so effortlessly and just be so head and shoulders above everybody else, for me, I find that very inspirational. And it's it's very short. I mean, of course, it's a, it's a race that lasts 10 seconds, but it's very inspirational. So with the Usain Bolt example, what do you take from that when you plug it into your life? And you see Usain Bolt do something incredible and amazing like that. What goes on in your head? Like, how do you bring that to your life? Well, one, it, you know, one of the very interesting things about a hundred meter race is it literally lasts 10 seconds, but it's so much work that goes into it, right? It's so much preparation and you don't see all of that. Sometimes you only see the final result. And uh, I think I use that as, as inspiration for me when sometimes I work very hard on things that people don't see, or maybe that they experience in a very short period of time, but it's still worth doing. Any examples that you wanted to, to highlight as far as like little nuggets that if you unpack, there's a whole lot more behind that um, that maybe doesn't get noticed? Sure. So one very relevant example would be the music on this podcast. You know, that that's just a little little nugget of delight I put at the beginning of uh, of each episode. But you know, it took it took me a while to find really the kind of music that I feel fits the tone of the podcast and then buy the license for it and then figure out how to read that in. But, you know, it's probably more work than is immediately apparent, but I think it's still well worth it. That's a great example. So thinking, oh, so tying that example of music that you chose for the podcast and your example highlighting Sugarfoot, Michael Jackson's drummer. Yeah. Um, I want to lay this on you and get your thoughts. A lot of people will say in creative pursuits, there's this separation of creative between like who's the creator, meaning who composed the Michael Jackson songs and who did all the sort of ideation behind that and put it on paper from a moment of inspiration, right? Yeah. And there's like the, the creative execution, right? The performance, et cetera, the actual delivery. People will debate which one is more creative, right? And people will say who gets more credit, what's, what's really the most inspirational part of that process. How do you think about that? Do you think of it like, where, where, where do you tend to side on that debate? Or do you think of it differently as far as the inspiration to, to creation uh, in, that whole, in that whole journey? Yeah, there's a lot of merit to both sides. Well, one of the interesting things with, with 
launching this podcast has been kind of exercising my creative muscle, thinking about how I want to bring it all together, how I want to edit it, what things I want to dig into. And so if you, if you go back to, to Sugarfoot, you know, as you said, somebody else composed that music, but when you watch the video, you very much see that he puts his own touches to it. There's literally a move in there that he, that is not in, you know, the typical drumming repertoire that is inspired from Kung Fu. And if you're purely just listening to the audio of it, it, you wouldn't be able to appreciate it because you don't see it, but he's also a performance drummer and, you know, he does it on stage. And then of course, in this video, you see it. So I'm not sure I would debate about the, you know, the, the relative importance of either. I think, I think both are, both are critical. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think the, I have my personal take is I don't know which one is more important, but there's clearly one that feels more overrated than underrated relative to general perception. So I, I, I think that last mile is key. Uh, that's the, the special touch. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like even in, even in the execution of it, even in the execution of something that's actually scripted word for word, like in movies, there's still the, the creative touch that can be added. That's right. That's right. So we've covered a lot of ground today. We talked about your career. We talked about your your many travels. Who's who's been sort of like the steady influence throughout that? Were you kind of like when you really think back and you're reflecting on your day or you're waking up in the morning? Like what's what always stands true? What's always held true in your life that you can always go back to and say, okay, this is what's really meaningfully impacted me throughout all my all this journey. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, for me, it's undoubtedly my my family. I think one of the one of the realizations that came out of that moment of having to leave the U.S. was also the importance of family. It was my brother at that point who, you know, hopped on a plane right away, came over to San Francisco, and along with with some friends, um, helped help me pack everything up and, and leave in a short period of time. And and where did I go? I went to my parents' place and, and I stayed with them. And unfortunately, it worked out. With I was providing enough value to the company that. I was able to continue working for the company, but from outside the U.S. But yeah, so I, I get a lot of inspiration as well from, from my family members, and they've been hugely influential on me. And I just kind of want to highlight my, my parents' story uh, a bit, because they've both had to overcome incredible adversity uh, and, and challenges in, in their lifetime. And I always think back to their specific life stories. So my, my mother lost her her dad to a road accident at the age of 16. And she comes from a family of eight siblings. And so seven of the kids were minors at the time and her mother was not earning. And my, my dad was born to, to parents who were subsistence farmers in Southern India. And from the age of three, he lived with his aunt and uncle. And while his aunt was supportive, his, his uncle strongly discouraged his pursuit of learning and, and tried to force him out of school many times. And despite these very real challenges. He learned to speak English. He then wrote and placed number 33 out of one of these insanely competitive exams in India uh, with 100,000 plus candidates, the Indian civil service exam. And and he then went on to serve in the Indian government for, for 35 years. And so because of his job, they both left India in, in 1977, the place where they they were born and grew up all their lives. And, you know, earlier in this conversation, I talked about me being an outsider, but it's it's absolutely nothing compared to the challenges they faced. My mom has told me how, you know, from being so tightly knit with all her siblings and her mother, she had to go 
months at a time without even hearing uh, the voice of her mother, just because they couldn't afford to have phone calls and uh, it wasn't easy to fly over. And of course, you didn't have all the modern technology you have now, you know, so they've been very influential in my life. My brother as well. My, my brother, he's always, he's my, my go-to mentor. I, I can't. So you, you've clearly done a ton of traveling, dating back to your childhood, going back into your parents' life, et cetera. Yeah. Um, give give the listeners some hope, right? If if and when the whole pandemic and the restrictions start to lift up, what are some big travel wrecks you want to give some people out there as far as places that are that are can't miss in your experience? So. As I mentioned, I've been fortunate to to live in many different places, which is actually quite a different experience from just visiting a place for two weeks. I've also, you know, taken two sabbaticals at this point, and my first sabbatical is really very travel focused. And I've been fortunate enough to visit a lot of different countries, but there is one country that really stands out. It's by far the most foreign place I've been to, a uh, place really where I completely lost my bearings where, you know, I cannot read the facial expressions of anyone. Uh, I open up Google Maps. I have no idea what's going on. And, and that place is Japan. So I've been to Japan twice, went 10 years ago during my first sabbatical for a month. And I backpacked through the country. I landed in the north and had one of those train passes, which allow, allow you to do unlimited travel in the country and made my way all the way down south. And more recently, last year, I went there with my wife and we were there for three weeks uh, and we both fell in love. I fell in love again with Japan. And that's one place I'm very excited about going back to again. This feels like lost in translation, the, the script of the movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, there, you know, there are really many times where you have no idea what's going on, but people are incredibly helpful. They might not be able to communicate with you, but they will hold your hand and walk you across the street or walk you for 15 minutes to where you need to get. That's awesome. Uh, Japan is very high on my list for my family. So I'm, I'm, thank you for the tip. That's, that's a different spin that I heard on. Cool. So let's think back. Let's think forward, actually, quite a few years now. And suppose it's your 80th birthday celebration and many of your friends and family are still around to join. And you've and the organizers of your birthday celebration have asked everyone to prepare a toast. What are some of the key things you would love to have heard when all is said and done in that 80th birthday toast? Yeah, this is this is a great question, and I I really like it because at the at the core of it, what you're asking is, in the end, what do you want to have mattered? And I think that's that's really important for all of us to to think about that. And so when thinking of how to answer, I, I think of the quote, I've learned that people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. And so along those lines, what I would like for most is for people to talk about the positive impact I had on their lives, just the way that I made them feel, uh, that I was there for them when it mattered. And even if I didn't do anything extraordinary, but that I was just there for them. And then on a lighter note, <laughs> I also hope that they commend me on my good health. You know, one of the things I've been working on this specific sabbatical is 
mastering the fundamentals of wellness, the, the three kind of pillars, uh, sleep, nutrition, and exercise. And I hope that over the many decades to come, all the compounding benefits of those investments uh, are reflected in the way I live life. Well, with that, my friend, cheers to you. I do hope that you make it to that 80th birthday celebration and that all these themes that you've discussed uh, come, come together from your friends, colleagues, and family. Thank you for agreeing to doing this. I, I'm really glad you did. I think the listeners will really enjoy this story. And, uh, and here's to more great stories on the On Path podcast. Cheers.